Good morning. First off, I, I want to just thank the Hamilton Community Church for letting us come this week. Let's go ahead and begin class with prayer. Our gracious Heavenly Father, we thank you for this opportunity to come and study. We invite you to join us and we open our hearts to you and ask your spirit will be with us. We ask your blessing on the class. We ask your blessing on this church and we thank you for the fellowship and the opportunity to uh, share with, share our hearts with you and each other. We pray in your holy name. Amen. We are doing uh, lesson number 10 in our quarterly, Glimpses of Our God. And the title this week is The Promise of Prayer. And the first paragraph in the lesson starts out from the book Steps to Christ. Our Heavenly Father waits to bestow upon us the fullness of his blessing. It is our privilege to drink largely at the fountain of boundless love. What a wonder it is that we pray so little. God is ready and willing to hear the sincere prayer of the humblest of his children, and yet there is much manifest reluctance on our part to make known our wants to God. What can the angels of heaven think of poor, helpless human beings who are subject to temptation when God's heart is infinite, when God's heart of infinite love yearns towards them, ready to give them more than they can ask or think, and yet they pray so little and have so little faith? The angels love to bow before God. They love to be near Him. They regard communion with Him as their highest joy, and yet the children of earth who need so much the help that God only can give seem satisfied to walk without the light of His Spirit, the companionship of His presence. Well, first off, from this paragraph, what would you say God's attitude toward hearing our prayers is? What's His attitude toward hearing our prayers? Waiting longing, desirous, wanting to hear our prayers. Well, what, what, how would you define prayer? What is prayer? She says talking to God. I like that. Talking to God. You know, I, I've read this paragraph many times. And when I read it, what I think of is with my kids, when they have a problem, wouldn't I love them to come to me and talk to me? I mean, if God is our Father, He wants to hear our problems. Not just because, I mean, He already knows it. We don't have to tell Him. But it helps us, I think, in going to him to realize that we have somebody that is there for us, that cares, even about the smallest detail in our life. And, I mean, don't you feel that way about your kids? There's nothing my kids could come to me with that I don't have time to listen. Wasn't that well said? I think that's exactly right. From my perspective, I think prayer is the physical act of making me consciously aware that I'm interacting with God all the time. Okay. I like that, too. A mental... A mental reaching out of your mind towards God. Um, Ellen White in the book uh, Christ Object Lessons says, Our life is to be bound up with the life of Christ. We are to draw constantly from him, partaking of him, the living bread that came down from heaven, drawing from the fountain ever fresh, ever giving forth its abundant treasures. If we keep the Lord ever before us, allowing our hearts to go out in thanksgiving and praise to him, we shall have a continual freshness in the religious life. Now get this. Our prayers will take the form of conversation with God as we would talk with a friend. He will speak his mysteries to us personally. So how do you like the definition of prayer? Okay, Talking to God. Conversation with God is with a friend. How do you like that definition? Yeah, that's a great definition, I think. So when you think about that type of def- definition, in order to have such an, a prayer life, conversation with God is with a friend, what would be necessary? And, and, and it's kind of an obvious question, but can you have conversation with a friend with a stranger? 
No. Okay? I mean, you, you follow me here. And so life eternal, John 17, 3, this is life eternal, they might know you, the only true God. So, so in order to have that kind of life, we have to come to know God. Uh, know God as a friend. <clears throat> and when we come to know somebody, think about your just day-to-day life. When you come to know somebody, and you spend time with them, and they become a friend, is it suddenly that there's this it's like light switch transformation in the way you talk to them? Or is there just a gradual transformation in how you talk to them as you get to know them? Yeah. But also, I think where we fail as Christians is that we feel like we have to have a formal way to pray to God. We have to be in a position like we're kneeling, whatever. I find the best way for me to talk to God is just talk to Him all day long. All day long. In your mind, in your heart, you're speaking to Him. Yep. Absolutely. And it doesn't mean a formal prayer. It just means, you know, even when I'm at work, I'll say, Lord, I can't get this IV started. Would you help me? I'm having a hard time with this. You know, you're just talking to Him. I like it. I like it. Your mind is constantly interacting with God as you go through the day. I think that is very, very beautiful and very healthy. Um, what happens in a relationship if you do all the talking and never stop to listen? Yeah, that relationship doesn't last long. It's not a relationship. Well, think about people's relationship with God. I have many patients who tell me they pray, they pray, they pray, they pray every day, they pray every day, and I'll say, and when do you let God speak to you? What do you mean? What are you talking about? Well, I was going to ask the class, how do we listen to God? Where do we listen to God? In what ways do we listen to God? In what ways does God communicate to us? What, what do you think? We, we talk to him. How does he talk back to us? Questions of our mind is one way, and through the Bible is another way. Well, what else? Sometimes through other people. Through other people? Events. Events, circumstances, situations, okay. I think uh, Mrs. White writings uh, speak to us of God. Uh, so Christ- Christian writers? Right. Okay. Nature. Nature. Don't you think God can communicate through... Anything that we connect with virtually if we're seeking Him? I think that's exactly right. And the key then is, do we have a heart that wants to listen? Remember Samuel? The story of Eli? The, the, the small voice? Samuel. Samuel. He runs to Eli. Eli, uh, what do you need? I didn't call you. And several times, they speak, speak, Lord, thy servant hears. Remember? It said that first, do we pray with an attitude of expecting to hear from God? Well, I see some faces like, ooh, wow, never thought of that one. Yes. Sometimes I think for me that I, I wonder, am I hearing God or am I, am I, am I hearing what I want to hear? Yeah, that's a danger there, isn't there? There's a tremendous danger. Do you know there's a, uh, there's a large religious organization that believes that the, way, that the way prayer life works, the way God leads us, is that we pray and we pray and we pray until we get an emotional conviction, of the burning bosom. And then that conviction is God communicating to us what we should do. And that's how we make decisions. We don't look at evidence. We don't look at truth. Um, we, we wait till the conviction of the Spirit leads us to do what we do. What's the danger in that? She said it's going on emotions. What you're saying here, James chapter 1 says that we're drug away and enticed. We're tempted when we're drug away and enticed by our own evil desires or emotions. And I've seen people pray really hard because they want something really bad. And they pray to the point they convince themselves God is leading. And then they go forward into the activity or the situation or the relationship or the marriage saying God brought this person into my life. 
when the evidence was this person was completely incompatible or unfit to be married to, but they prayed about it and they had a conviction it was right, and so it must be God's will that they do it. So so then when God communicates to us, is it is it important? Is it is it proper to um inquire, to to check references, so to speak? <laughs> is that proper to do? Have you ever wondered, have you ever read the stories in the Bible when the prophets would have an angel come visit? And that, man, well, I, that would be cool. Wouldn't, I would, I wouldn't it be, Gabriel, come, come, let's have a conversation, Gabriel. Wouldn't it be cool? Prayer life, night, boom, Gabriel's at the foot of your bed, and you're getting, you're getting a conversation with Gabriel. Would you, wouldn't that be fun? Question. Let's say it happens tonight. You're praying. Angel appears. Brilliant. Boom. You're like, ah, okay. And he's talking to you. How do you know? whether it's Gabriel or that angel of light that took Christ to the top of the temple. How could you tell the difference? Can you tell by sight what they look like? By evidence. Angels can deceive, can't they? Is one tempting you to distrust God and the other one is encouraging you to look at the evidence? I think ultimately that will be the key. But the point I'm making is I think God doesn't allow that to happen. Because we really aren't developed enough in our understanding of him and, and to be able to, to differentiate between one of God's angels and one of the other angels. I think we could get confused very easily. I think many people be overwhelmed by the, by the, the light show and the, and the mighty, wondrous brilliance of an angel. We wouldn't even stop to think, wow, it's an angel, woo! Well, it's not safe. You see something. What if you hear a voice <clears throat> clear as you could hear yourself talking? Then you need to take your medicine. <laughs> I'm just kidding, sorry. <laughs> that was a joke, I'm sorry. But I'm a psychiatrist, I couldn't help. <laughs> what if you hear a voice talking as clearly? Same, same thing. Yeah. Wait a minute, it's nothing that's going to scare you as far as the, how they look or their brightness or who do they look like. It's a voice that you hear when you ask a question or when you pray about something and you say, Lord, would you please... Reveal to me what you want me to do, and the voice reveals to you. And and should we should we accept it, or should we still think about it? No, think about it. I'm, I'm just saying, you're not seeing something that would scare you, and you would. No, I hear you. Yeah. you. You get a voice. Yeah. Should you accept it? Boom. What's well, a voice? Okay, it must be God. Or do you still say, "Let me think about it"? I still think about it, but okay. I'm... Yeah, Wendell. In Job, there was someone that came to him in the middle of the night and uh, was stood at the foot of his bed. It was the wrong spirit. And yet he received a message that he liked. You know. Interesting, yes. The Bible assures us that God, first of all, doesn't tempt us. So when we're tempted, it's not coming from him. And it also assures us that he will not allow us to be tempted beyond what we can bear. So if we have these situations where we're doubting, I think we can in confidence go to him and ask for clarity and ask for understanding and discernment. Yeah, I like that very much. I like that very much. Um, look at um, first paragraph. Oh, wait, wait. Sunday's lesson. Let's look at Sunday's lesson. It's titled "The Power of Prayer." The power of prayer. And then during uh, a recent presidential, and we're about four years ago, last presidential, we're entering another presidential campaign now. Um, one of the uh, one of the debates they were having, the person moderating the debate asked the candidates, "Do you believe in the power of prayer? Do you believe in the power of prayer?" And I remember one particular candidate, I won't tell you which one, I remember one particular candidate answered it this way, no, but I pray every day. 
That's how he answered the, the question. No. Do you believe in the power of prayer? No, but I pray every day. Okay, well, his wife was, was dying of cancer. That gives you a clue. Okay? And, um, and why was this answer given? Well, it's a complete political answer. No, for all the agnostics and atheists, so they won't uh, reject them because he doesn't really believe there's anything to it. Uh, but I pray every day for all those who really believe there's power in prayer. I can have both your votes. Okay, that's what that answer is clearly about. But question to you, if somebody asks you the question, do you believe there is power in prayer? What is your answer? There's power in the God you're praying to? That's one way to answer it. I like the way she's answered because my my response back was, um, rather than just a a yes, is to throw a question back. Does it depend on which God you're praying to? Or does, it pray to, to, does it, the power in the prayer depend upon the God to whom you're praying? Does, it, does this mean that whatever happens is God's will? Different question, isn't it? How do we respond? I think, I think that, that question is pretty straightforward. Everything that happens is not God's will. God's will that man be sin, that man sins. Is God's will that kids get molested? Is it God's will that murder happens? It's not God's will everything that happens. It's pretty straightforward. To me, the big question is, how do I determine what, when actions happen after I have prayed, how do I interpret that? How, how do I respond? Uh, is everything that happens an answer to my prayer? Uh, ultimately, the answer to your prayer, it depends on who you're praying. That's my point. It depends to, upon whom you're praying. But when you say upon whom? Yes, the, the, the first question is, is who are we praying to? The second question is, what are we praying? So, but the first question, the answer is to... Don't we assume that we're praying to God in heaven? Yes. Let, let, let me read this first paragraph here, and it'll, it'll actually kind of maybe merge both of them on Sunday's lesson. It says, One day a young man received a letter from a former co-worker, someone who had retired a number of years earlier. The two workers, to put it mildly, had, hadn't gotten along. Uh, the one who had left uh, had... Um, Basically, there was a conflict going on, treated him very badly, and at the end, uh, the person left, started having a prayer life, and wrote a letter of apology, I'm so sorry, I treated you badly, after they started a prayer life. And the point is, um, in many ways, this story exemplifies the power of prayer. It is uh, not so much to get God to move mountains, although that can happen. Instead, it can cause something even more miraculous. It can change the human heart. And I think the lesson is really, really right on here that the primary focus and purpose of prayer is to change the person praying. That's its number one purpose, to change the purpose the person praying. And so then it comes back to the question, and we can get to specific then external things we pray for in a minute. What about those things? But, and we will get to that, to whom are we praying is the question. Do all Christians pray to the same God? When Jesus said, they will come to me at the end of time and say, Lord, Lord, we prophesied in your name. We cast out demons in your name. We perform miracles in your name. Whose name are they doing all this in? Buddha? Hare Krishna? Jesus. These people profess Christians, yet he says, Get ye hence, ye workers of iniquity, I never knew you. So here Jesus is saying, you can pray in my name. You can do miracles in my name. You can call yourself professed Christian, but you're not praying to me. I don't know you. Now, this is out of a book called Great Controversy, page 583, because I asked the question, how can a person pray to Jesus, go to church, identify themselves as a Christian, be baptized as a Christian, do all this stuff, and still not be a Christian? How can that happen? Wouldn't that be an important question to know? 
This is out of Great Controversy 583. In rejecting the truth, men reject its author. In rejecting the truth, you reject the author of truth. In trampling upon the law of God, they deny the authority of the lawgiver. It is easy it is as easy to make an idol of false doctrines and theories as it is to fashion the idol of wood or stone. By misrepresenting the attributes of God, Satan leads men to conceive of him in false character. With many, a philosophical idol is enthroned in place of Jehovah, while the living God, as he is revealed in his word and in Christ and in the works of his creation, is worshipped but by few. Where is God revealing himself? In his word, in creation, and in Christ. Thousands deify nature when they deny the God of nature. Though in a different form, idolatry exists in the Christian world today. As verily as it existed among the ancient Israelites in the days of Elijah, the God of of many professedly wise men, of philosophers, poets, politicians, journalists, the God of polished, fashionable circles, of many colleges and universities, even of some theological institutes, is little better than Baal, the sun god of Phoenicia. Even theological institutes. Now, do you guys believe that what I just read is true? That you can be a Christian, a professed Christian, you can pray to Jesus Christ, be baptized, come to church every week, and be worshiping such a distorted construct that you're actually worshiping a God no better than Baal. So, do you notice where the where, where the key started? Where this whole when she started this paragraph, what was the focal point, the crux upon which things shifted? In trampling upon the law of God. They deny the author of the lawgiver. They make false doctrines. Now, how has God's law been trampled upon in the church? Any thoughts about that? Maybe we have to identify first what his law is. What is his law? The law of love. And of course, the scriptures, for those who want the notes, it's all in the scripture. I've got scripture text after scripture text in our notes, but Romans 13.10 would be a good, a good uh, example. Therefore, love is the fulfillment of the law. Or Galatians 5.14. The entire law is summed up in a single command. Love your neighbor as yourself. And remember, Christ said, love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength, and neighbor as yourself. All the law hangs on these two. And then, out of Great Controversy 4.93, which is the um, same book as we read from the other quote just a moment ago, it says, uh, our only definition of sin given in the word of God is transgression of the law. It is the outworking of a principle at war with the great law of love, which is the foundation of the divine government. So notice that the, the foundation of the government of God is the law of love, and sin is a principle, not a behavior. So many times we focus on behavior. You're going to find out why in a second. We focus on behavior. And then this one is out of uh, Reflecting Christ, page 46. The law of God from its very nature is unchangeable. It is a revelation of the will and character of its author. God is love, and his law is love. Its two great principles are love for God and love to man. Such a law, being the expression of the mind and will of God, must be as enduring its author. What is the focus? God's character of love. So, be very practical. Does it make sense that the the being who created everything would make everything in harmony with his own nature? And his nature is? So, everything was constructed, built to run in harmony 
with the law of love. It's a principle. We've talked about it before. Simple example, the principle of love, the principle of giving. Every breath you take, you give away at carbon dioxide. Plants give back oxygen to you. How hard is it for you to breathe? Do you have to work at it? It's so easy the way God designed things. It was designed to run in this way. But you're free to break the law. You're free to tie a bag over your head, a plastic bag over your head, and break that law. And when you break that law, what happens? Yes, the wages of sin is death. Yes. So why is the law unchangeable, as it said in the earlier? The law is unchangeable. Why is the law of respiration unchangeable? Did you break it, you die. <laughs> because that's the way life was constructed by God to work, and it emanates from his own being, and God doesn't change. This is why the law is unchangeable, because it's constructed to operate that way, not because it's imposed. And It's important to me to remember that it's not that God chose to do that, and I think we have to carefully word when we limit God, but it's not that God chose of two choices to design us that way, but being a being of perfect love, that was the only thing he could do, was to, not, to design exactly. his creation and, and love. And so the question now is, so we see God's character of love. We see this principle of giving, how God designed things to work. We see God's laws, the foundation upon which his government is built, this law of love, this principle of beneficence. And now we have to come back and ask the question, how has Christianity trampled upon this law? such that we end up with a different God that's not God at all. How's it done it? And you guys know the answer to this question. An imposed law. Margaret, exactly right. Uh, When Constantine converted, Christianity exchanged this reality of God's laws, the template of, of life, for a Roman construct of law. God, like a Roman emperor, imposes law upon his creatures, and as the imposer of law, he now imposes penalties and punishments. And so we, we have a God who is very much ending up uh, being like Baal in character. So who was Baal? And you guys know who Baal was. He was the God of the Phoenicians who was the son of El. Remember this? I love this when you run these down. The son of El, as in El Shaddai or Elohim. Baal was the son of El. He was the God of the weather who, who was called the Almighty, the Lord of the earth. He was the one who brought thunder and lightning and rain and fertilized the earth and brought produce every year. He fought the great serpent of evil, Leviathan, and battled against Mote, the God of death. And in his battle with Mote against the God of death, Baal died and rose again to bring life back to the earth. This is Baal. Did you not know this? Yes, and Baal, by the way, B-A-A-L in Hebrew, means husband and protector of Israel. And that's why you have Baal Peor in the Bible, and, and, Baal, uh, and some of these other names of Israel were called this because Baal meant the husband and protector of Israel. So what was wrong with Baal worship? I mean, what's wrong with worshiping a God who is the son of El, who, who is the, uh, the controller of the weather, who brings fertile, fertile uh, uh, produce and stuff, harvest to us, who fights against the great serpent, the evil one, who fights against death, who dies and rises again to bring life? What's wrong with that God? Tell us the rest of the story. The rest of the story, okay. <laughs> this is out of uh, Prophets and Kings, page 124. Determined to keep the people in deception, the priests of Baal continued to offer sacrifices to their gods to call upon them night and day to refresh the earth with costly offerings the priest attempted, quote, to appease the anger of their gods. What does Baal worship center on? 
In First Kings 18.28, so the prophets prayed louder and cut themselves with knives and daggers according to their customs until the blood flowed. This is what they did. God, Baal, Baal is a God who must be appeased. Why? Well, if you have... Yeah, so if you have the law of love, life is, is built to operate on this principle, constructed like the law of respiration, and you break this law, what's the problem with breaking this law? What's the problem? Tying a plastic bag over your head, jumping off a building, injecting yourself with cyanide, breaking the law that life is built to operate upon. What's the problem? You lose life. Life ends. That's right. It's a terminal situation, terminal condition. So what is the solution? What needs to happen if that kind of law is broken? Say that louder. Yes, put you back in harmony with the way God built life to operate. And so in this understanding, sin is transgression of the law. Christ came to put mankind back into harmony with God, to fix what was broken in man. So the problem of sin exists in the heart in man. Man is broken. Man is defective. Man is deviant from God's design. Christ came to reconcile man or put man back in harmony with God to fix what's broken in man to write the law on the heart and mind, to recreate us in the inner man, to give us a new heart and right spirit, to circumcise the heart by the spirit, to remove the start of stone, to put in the heart of flesh. Christ came to fix the brokenness in man that is terminal. In this other view, God is like a Roman emperor who puts laws upon his creatures to control behavior and test obedience. When you break that kind of law, what's the problem? She said it, imposed penalty. When you break the speed limit law put on by our government, What's the problem with breaking the speed limit law? What's the problem with breaking tax law? What's the problem with breaking, you know, uh, uh, all these different laws that we create in our legislation? What's the problem with doing that? Does life cease to operate when you do that? No. It, 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 it offends the authority, the ruling government, and some penalty must be imposed. So you now are under the imposed penalty of the ruling authority. And what's the solution for that problem? Pay the proper price to the government, whether it's your fine, whether it's your years in prison, whether it's something to appease and pay the government. Appeasement becomes the solution. And so you have two different ways to view God's law. If you trample the law of God and replace the law of love with a Roman construct of law, then you end up with the Roman pagan God that you worship and call him Jesus. And so here's Prophets and Kings, page 685. While God had desired to teach men that from his own love comes the gift which reconciles them to him, fixing what's broken, making us back into unity with him, reconciling us to him, the archenemy of mankind has endeavored to represent God as one who delights in their destruction. Thus the sacrifices and ordinances designed of heaven to reveal divine love have been perverted to serve as means whereby sinners have vainly hoped to propitiate with gifts and good works, the wrath of an offended God. So what has happened to Christianity? But Christianity has trampled on the law of God and accepted a Roman construct of God's law and now teaches that God sent Christ to propitiate his anger and wrath. And they pray, and we come all the way back now. Does it make a difference in your prayer life if you're praying to Jesus, the God of love, or if you're praying to Baal, the imposer and punisher of sinners, the imposer of the law and punisher of sinners, does it make a difference? Yes, it makes a huge difference. Does it make a difference if we pray to Baal, but call him Jesus? You see what I'm saying here? This is what Jesus was talking about. 
they will come to me at the end of time and say, Lord, Lord, we prophesied in your name. Uh-uh, that was Baal you were doing that in. Baal's name. But you just called him Jesus. Does it make a difference when we pray to a God who loved us so much he gave his life to heal and save us from the terminal condition that we found ourselves in because of Adam's choice? And if we pray, or if we pray to a God who is angry and wrathful and sent his son and executed his son in our place, if we don't accept that propitiation of blood, he will kill us. Does it make a difference which God you're praying to? Are we changed personally, individually, character-wise? Are we impacted by the God that we pray to? Third paragraph. Oh, did you, you want to explore further your question now? So once we've defined, I wanted to really pull out the two constructs of God. Now the question, does it really matter what you're praying if you're praying to Baal? Does it really matter? Help me be like you, Baal. You see? So the first question is, we really need to be sure we're praying to God who is revealed in Jesus, don't we? That's the first question. And then, after we're praying to that God, then we can ask the question, what are we praying? And um, I might have to jump around somewhere. And I, um, Well, maybe it'll, this will answer the, maybe we'll start to answer the question. It comes up again later in the lesson. But third paragraph says, um, as a person wrote, prayer isn't always easy to understand. Why ask God for something if he knows about it already? Will God not do something unless we ask it for it first? Can our prayers really change what the creator God will do? Thoughts about that? Why pray about something if God already knows our need, already knows the circumstance, already knows the situation, he's already loving, already compassionate, already cares? Why should we have to pray <clears throat> in order for God to intervene in our behalf. Yes? I think we've already established that prayer changes us. Okay, so number one, prayer changes us. So if it's for our benefit to draw us closer to the one who wants to intervene in our life, opening maybe our prayer opens the avenues from which he can work. Okay, yes? I don't know that I have good scriptural, uh, scriptural um, proof of this, but we are in the great controversy and it would seem that this allows God to do things that he would otherwise not be allowed to do by the rules of the game. Yeah, and the rules of the game are what rules? Made by the devil. No, the devil doesn't make rules. The devil breaks rules. He, he makes his own rules. Oh, he doesn't make rules. The Lord doesn't play by the devil's rule book. No, I don't believe that for a second. No, no, no. But I, understand, but I like what you said about the rules of the game. I think there are rules of the game. But what are those rules? Truth, love, freedom. These are the rules. And God, will God violate your free will? No, he won't violate your free will. So the rules of the game are the free choices of people, that he won't force people, coerce people, turn them into robots. These are the rules of the game. So in the book of Daniel, chapter 10, we see Daniel praying. The prophecy has been fulfilled. It's time for us to be set free. Daniel begins to pray. An angel is sent and said, as soon as you began to pray, I was dispatched, but the prince of Persia has been opposing me. Who's the prince of Persia? Well, Satan is called the prince of this world. That's what, in the New Testament, right? The prince of this world, Satan. So is the prince of Persia bigger or smaller than the world? Smaller. So who's the prince of Persia? One of Satan's underlings. And if he says in the conversation, no one, no one supports me in this fight except your prince, Michael. Michael the prince helps me. But I've got to go now because the prince of Greece is coming. Who's the prince of Greece? Another one of Satan's underlings. 
And so we find what's going on here, a little view behind the scenes. There is an angelic battle going on behind the scenes. For what? For the minds. And whose mind in this? Cyrus. Cyrus is under pressure by demonic forces to not let the people go. And I see this prayer life is angelic hosts are coming to neutralize the impact on the mind. Not to cause Cyrus to do something, but to take off the negative pressure that's clouding his mind so he can make a free, free will choice. Yes? My question is, what is your opinion on intercessory prayer? If it's all about free will, how does our prayer for a, quote, non-believer do anything? Um, first off, it changes you. It changes you so that you, if to the degree you interact with the person you're interceding with, will have a more Christ-like demeanor, insight, wisdom, compassion, um, being open to the Spirit moment to moment to give responses that would reflect Christ more. So number one, it changes you. Uh, two, Christ will not violate the free will of the person who says, I don't want to be in your life. That's one of the rules of the game, right? But he will respect your free will and say, I'm not violating your free will, but on your behalf, I'm coming to bring an opportunity. I'm probably to put a truth in front of you. I'm coming to, to maybe put a, a situation that will cause you to stumble so you can rethink your condition. So I think in behalf of the prayer you're interceding for, God, in respect of your free will, is interacting to give oppor- another opportunity, another truth, another example, another situation for that person to reconsider, to reconsider, to reconsider, but not forcing their will. How about when we use prayer as a tool to get our way, to force an issue? Um, we, we use, it, it seems to me that oftentimes in church, when we have an opening prayer, and then just in case he doesn't catch that, we'll have another season of prayer. Then we have prayer when we have the offering. And then we'll, you know, we keep having all these little prayers as though God didn't hear anything. So let's... Uh, Go ahead. No, 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 I'm going to answer your question. So... Um, and in answering, in, in, in answering your question, let's go to the last paragraph and then answer your question with the last paragraph in Sunday's lesson. No question as Christians we are told to pray, and to pray often, that we might not understand how prayer works is really beside the point. I really didn't like that sentence. <laughs> um, most of us don't fully understand how anything works, be it secular or sacred. If we waited until we fully understood all the issues regarding our faith, then it really wouldn't, would hardly be faith, would it? The very word faith implies itself implies that there are elements beyond our intellectual grasp. Uh, One thing, though, uh, that anyone who prays consistently and fervently and according to the will of God can testify is to that prayer can and does change our lives. So, to the question now, prayer. How does prayer work first? Well, how does conversation work? What is prayer? Conversation with God is right. So how does conversation work? Or should we maybe put it this way? How do relationships work? Because aren't conversations, communications in the context of a relationship? So think about now the conversation you're having and now think about different types of relationships. Does your conversation change based on the quality of the relationship? And then will your conversation change based on um, your experience of the other person in the relationship? If prayer is a vehicle... if so, so prayer is a vehicle to communicate in, in the relationship with God. Thus, the prayer of a righteous man 
veils much because the quality of the relationship. And what I mean by that is this. The righteous man has a close relationship with God. He knows God. He knows his will. He knows his character. His heart has been changed. His thoughts have been brought into harmony with God's thoughts. His will has been brought into harmony with God's will. He longs to glorify God. So his prayers are prayers that are other-centered, altruistic, interested in being used in God's cause to bless and uplift others. The prayers of a righteous man will avail much because they're resonating with the purposes, conditions, designs, protocols, elements, laws of God. These, pr- these prayers are. However, the prayers of the selfish man limit God's actions. Like a child who begs their parents to give them something that the parent knows will harm them. The parent is limited in how they can respond to that child because they know that this this request is selfish, is self-indulgent, is destructive, and such prayers, you hear them, but the quality of the relationship, a self-centered relationship, changes the impact of the prayer, doesn't it? So, back to what do we pray? We pray for things. Are we praying in the relationship in which we have been unified with Christ and we're praying? Of course, when Christ says, when you pray in my name, and, and what's that mean? When you pray in my character. Name is character. When your character has been transformed to be like my character and you pray, many things will happen. That's a trump card. When, when, when somebody's been praying and they said, I've have been, I felt impressed by God that this is the, the, the answer to my prayer. How can you trump that? Oh, I find that to be quite unhelpful, frankly. I've dealt with many people who have come in and I, I, I prayed and I felt an impression to do it and then all these bad things happened and I said, yeah, you felt impressed, but did you actually think? Did you look at the evidence? Do you understand God's principles? Did you look at the qualities of the person you're about to marry? You felt impressed to marry him. A good example, woman prays and she feels impressed that this man in the church should divorce his wife and marry her. She felt impressed that was God leading. I think we, that's a, I give that example because it's pretty black and white. God's not going to lead that. I'm thinking of more like theological problems. Yes. Same, pro, same process though. Same process. How does God want us to come to know the truth about him? Because of an impression or because of an understanding? Let's, let's, give, let's see if I can give you this example. You go to the emergency room with fever, cough, chills. Fever 102, coughing up crud, shaking. You go to the ER, and uh, you're relieved to discover that the ER physician is a Christian. And, he's, and he, after he hears your story, he says, I'm going to pray for a moment for some wisdom. And he prays, and after prayer, he comes back and says, I've got a really good feeling that there's nothing wrong. You go home. <laughs> Do you like that doctor? You say, give me a second opinion. <laughs> Okay, so another doctor comes along, he hears what you say, now he also puts a stethoscope on, listens to your lungs, draws blood, does an x-ray, um, and based on all this evidence, he tells you the conclusion that you've got pneumonia. Now, when you hear that truth, do you get a feeling of conviction? A feeling of confidence that that's right? Yes, the truth changes our feelings. We get a change of conviction when the truth comes home to rest in our heart. The devil tries to deceive people by exchanging and replacing the truth with the mere feeling of conviction. That's a deception. Yes? One of the things, talking a little bit more about her idea of intercessory prayer, comes home especially to me with my children. 
And I realized in my life there were times, there was a period of time when my children were younger, that I was teaching them the wrong concepts of God. And when I pray for them now, I recognize that God will not interfere with their free will. But when I pray, I say, God, I chose to... My choice reflected poorly on your character. I'm asking you to intercede in ways in their life to correct the bad information that I gave them. It wasn't their free will that I gave them that bad information anyway. So I'm asking you to override what I did, recognizing that he still won't take away their free will. But I think that empowers God to step in into their lives Amen. in a way that he wouldn't have before when I say, that was my choice. I'm asking you to overcome my choice. I, I agree with her. I agree with Amen. you completely. Now, now let's take the next question in the lesson. What happens this? You pray to God to do something that you already know he has explicitly told you he doesn't want you to do. Will he use his power to help you do it? Well, what about the, the, the quail? Did he want the children of Israel to eat manna or to eat meat? But what did they beg for? Who brought the quail? Wait a minute. God used his power to help them do something he didn't want them to do? What about kings to rule over them? Who, what did God tell them he wanted? What did he warn them about? Who chose their first two kings? God helped them do something he didn't want them to do? You see, when you think about this, does it give you pause to consider your prayer life? Be careful what you're asking. Now, why would God do that? Brittany. In the situation of um, Abraham and Isaac, uh, am I saying the right ones, asked to sacrifice his son? Yes, Abraham, Isaac. Um, I mean, what was Abraham supposed to think? Because that seems so contradictory to anything that God would ever ask you to do. You shouldn't kill. So why should Abraham have listened to that voice? Uh, I think in Abraham's situation, it's completely different. And here's why. Number one, uh, Abraham had been asking God to help him see more fully God's character and, and what God was going to be doing for man. In other words, to empathize and be more in harmony with God. The prayer to sacrifice Isaac was an answer to that prayer. It was an answer to help Abraham put himself in God's shoes to experience the agony that God would go through when he sacrifices his son. Number one. Number two, Abraham had that child at what age? And Sarah was at what age? Okay, well beyond menopause. Okay? And so that child was a miracle child where fertility was restored to those who had lost fertility. And so Abraham had reasoned out in his wrestling with this on his three-day journey to go sacrifice Isaac that God brought this child to life who, from a dead womb, can raise this child back to life. And so um, ultimately we know that, that God, uh, God never had an intention at all for Abraham to kill Isaac. He was juxtaposing the character against what was commonly accepted in that culture, which was to sacrifice children. It was, I believe, to help Abraham empathize with what God would go through. And then God, of course, sent the replacement in that situation. Yes? I get it, but in what if modern day there's a similar situation where God asked someone who was in a close relationship with him to do something that seemed contradictory to his will? It, How do you discern that between Satan. How many of you have had face-to-face -face conversations with God? Abraham had. Well, what if at some point 
that it, returns and God starts having face-to-face conversations with us again. Then I would suggest you listen to him if you know it's God. And my other question but, is... But, 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 but with Abraham, notice what Abraham did. Abraham argued with God. He didn't just listen blindly. Oh, God said it. I believe it. That settles it. I'm gone. God said, I know it's God. He said it. I'm gone. I'm going to come destroy Sodom. Well, God, you know, I know you're a God of love and righteousness. You really wouldn't kill if there were 50 people in that, in that city that were righteous. You wouldn't do that. No, for 50, I won't. Well, how about 45? Well, we do for, how about 40? How about 30? How about 20? How about 10? No, God, you really wouldn't do it. Sure, surely the Lord of all the earth should do the right thing. You should do the right thing, shouldn't you? You, imp- you impudent rascal. How dare you speak to me this way? Is that what he did? No. So what we find is there is conversation with God as with a friend. And, Moses, and Abraham was called a friend of God. So I would encourage you, if you have, to have a, have a conversation about that. Hey, I, I'm not convinced this is the right. I'm not, real, no, I'm not convinced. God will convince you if, if it's really God. My other question is, you made a comment earlier that I think what you said anyways is that God wouldn't allow a being of light to be presented to us today because we can't quite understand or discern that from a true angel. Is that what you said? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Doesn't it? And I don't know where in the Bible it says it, but doesn't it say that at some point there will be Satan or evil yes. angels that will present themselves yep. in beings of light? So is your opinion on that, that at some point in the future that we as a people will have a deep enough understanding yep. of God that we will be able to discern? Yep. Okay. We know, no temptation is taking you to that which is common. We're not allowed to be tempted more than you're able, so he protects us now. But when we become so settled into the truth, both intellectually and spiritually, that you cannot be moved, then the, the, uh, the gloves come off, the restraining hand of the four winds of strife get loosed, and more freedom is given to evil powers, but those who are settled cannot be moved by it. Yeah. Um, so, does it give us pause in what we pray for? How about we pray... God, I really, really, really want this job. I really do. I really, really want it. But Lord, I know that you know things that I don't know. And so even though I really, really, really want it, if it's in my best interest, in your greater plan, it's be- if it's, it's the greater good that I don't get it, it's okay. Don't let me have it. But I'm going to apply, and I'm going to see how, what develops. But if, if, if something really is working against your plan, close that door for me. Is that how we pray? When we pray, Lord, I don't care what your will is, I want that job. And then when we pray, let your will be done. And if I, if I don't get my way, Lord, because I really, really want this, give me a clue so I can figure out why it's not good for me. <laughs> I, I, I pray that prayer, I have. And it really, Lord will give you a clue. He wants you to understand him. He'll give you the insight to understand why. And you go, oh, thank you. Thank you for, for not letting me go down that path. Thank you. Yes. I think part of the problem is that when we when we pray a prayer of request, we assume that we're going to get a yes answer. It's like a child that asks a parent for something. They assume the answer is going to be yes. The answer is not always yes. The answer is sometimes no. The answer is sometimes wait. The answer is sometimes you're not old enough or wise enough. We just automatically assume it's going to be a yes answer, and if we didn't get the yes answer, well, then our prayer wasn't answered. Exactly. Good point. Excellent point. I don't remember, somebody will here probably remember, but there is a, an evangelical Christian writer and speaker who tells the story, and if you remember who it was, tell me, because I don't remember, that, uh, that their, their small child, three, four, five-year-old child, fell in the swimming pool. He was, he, was, he was not paying attention out in the backyard, looks and he sees his daughter at the bottom of the pool, just floating at the bottom of the pool. And 
Of course, he panics, begins, immediately dives in, but he begins praying instantly. Lord, oh no, oh no, Lord. And he pulls his child out, starts doing CBR, and he's praying, Lord, Lord, please, please, Lord, please, please. And, and the child coughs and sputters and, and, and survives, and, and, and he goes, oh, thank you, God, you are so good. And he thought hit him. If she wouldn't have survived, would I have been less good? Does that help with our question on how God answers prayers? Would God have been less good if she would not have revived? Some of you are having trouble with that. Hmm. We would have been acutely aware of it less if she hadn't survived in that moment. We would have been distracted maybe by... I will say this. I have had experiences through my life with my kids that have been... Not the best, by far. But it's through these experiences that now I look back on it. I can see that the path that God wanted me to take, or the path, things that happened, at the time didn't seem the best, but they were now when I look back on it. And it's only been through my prayer life that I've learned to trust God now. Not for my will, but for His will. And I haven't always agreed with His will, trust me. But when I look back on it, it's been for the best. And I can tell you for exactly, uh, did everybody hear what she said? Yeah, good. I can tell you I've had the same experiences. And as I look back on the times when I was not really trusting to the times that I am, what's changed in my life was how I understood God. Back then, I understood him in this bail construct. I understood him as the imposer of law. I understood him as the great judge. I understood him as one who was looking over my shoulder with a with an angel keeping a track of everything I was going to do. I understood him that I was going to have to face that judgment seat one day. I understood him he was going to have to punish me if Christ didn't protect me from him. I mean, this is the kind of God that I was raised to believe in in this church. And when I would pray, I didn't trust him. I didn't want him to actually have his will done because, you know, he, he he's just not very cool. He's not very kind. But then when I come to, came to understand Christ as Jesus revealed him, always for us. Who, if God is for us, who can be against us? He did not spare us some, but gave him up. How we not with him give us all things? You see, when I came to understand him like this, then suddenly it made all the difference. Wow, hey, he really knows better than me, and he wants better for me than I want for me. Now, I heard those platitudes that God wants what's good for me when I still conceived of him like this, but I, it, it, it didn't, had no resonance with me. It didn't mean anything to me that when people would read those quotes about God is for us or he, he loves you or he wants good things for you, as long as I was still conceiving of him as a God who would, would be the source of my ultimate punishment and death, I, it, it, it was not meaningful. And so maybe the, let's jump to Thursday's lesson. We'll come back if we have time. Let's jump to Thursday's lesson. First paragraph, someone sits in a restaurant uh, consuming a large meal filled with fatty foods that he or she washes down with a soft drink. He or she then finishes off the large bowl with chocolate ice cream covered with hot fudge. That night before they go to bed and having a little snack before bedtime too, uh, he or she then prays part of his uh, his or her prayer, Lord, please help me lose some weight. (laughs) Now you laugh at this. I, I, I see this all the time. I have people who pray for a healthy, a happier marriage while they mistreat their spouse, cheat on their spouse, hit their spouse, verbally abuse and criticize their spouse. Please help me have a happy marriage while they are just unloving and unkind in their marriage. What is God supposed to do with that? I have people who pray for healthier lungs while they smoke a pack of cigarettes a day. I'm having trouble breathing on oxygen now. Help my lungs get better. You know, I mean, what's God going to do with that? Yes, exactly. 
And so jump down to the third paragraph. Oh, by the way, how does this idea that was just constructed here get translated into Christianity? My view about someone praying for legal pardon while they continue to live in sin. Pay my sin, Lord. Pay my debt. So I can go to heaven while I continue to live in sin. Yes, go ahead. That's all self. You know, you're, it's very a selfish way to do it. And that's the same way I was raised. And it, was, it wasn't uh, a picture of God that you actually surrendered yourself to. Exactly. Now listen to this quote. This is out of uh, Steps to Christ, page 95. If we regard iniquity in our hearts, if we cling to any known sin, the Lord will not hear us, but the prayer of the penitent, contrite soul, is always accepted. When, when all known wrongs are righted, we may believe that God will answer our petitions. Our own merits will never commend us to the favor of God. It is the worthiness of Jesus that will save us, his blood that will cleanse us. Yet we have a work to do in complying with the conditions of acceptance. How do you understand this? Well, I'll tell you, this is scared me to death when I heard this quote given to me years ago. They missed the part, if, if, it's a, if we cling to a known sin, I've always thought, well, I don't have a chance because I've got sin in my life, so God's not going to hear my prayer anyway. Question. He will not hear us. Does that mean he doesn't know what we're praying? It's like, it's like you know, when you ever watch um, the Peanuts, uh, you know, Charlie Brown, wah, 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 that's what he's hearing when you're praying? Or does he actually know what you're praying? No. Okay, he knows. He knows what we're praying. So what does it mean he doesn't hear our prayers? He can't override our free will. Oh, now we're getting to it. See, this is the issue. He doesn't override our free will. See, uh, you've heard me talk about patients who are in marriages where their husbands are hitting them. And as their husbands are hitting them, the husbands are saying, I only do this because I love you. Now, what do you believe, his words or his actions? His actions are revealing his heart. His heart, he doesn't love her. His words say he does. When we pray with sin cherished in the heart, God reads the heart. And he knows your words are empty and meaningless. You don't love him or love others any more than the man who beats his wife while he hits her says he loves her. And so God recognizes your true heart and answers your prayer in harmony with your heart. Isn't that cool? Yes, and does that make that paragraph better to understand? That's why he doesn't do it. He can't. He's not going to go against your free will. He's not going to go against your heart, your true heart's desire or wish. Our own merit will never commend us to God. What do you understand that to mean? We can never be good enough. How about um, you don't have within you the remedy for your condition? That's what it means. We don't possess the remedy. The remedy only comes from Christ, and we can partake of it freely. But we, we can't create it, generate it, or produce it. And then Wednesday's lesson, we'll jump back real quick, maybe hit a point or two. Um, bottom, uh, bottom two paragraphs, it says, Notice, however, that God isn't going to heal their land just because they ask. Perhaps the most important example of this principle is, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and purify us from all unrighteousness. Here we see the powerful link between prayer, in this case confession, and God's action in our lives. We confess our sins and he forgives them, a process, um, a process that also results in cleansing us from unrighteousness. The clear idea implied here is that if we don't pray, don't confess, we aren't forgiven. <laughs> I heard some gasps. <gasps> Good for you for gasping. <laughs> Good for you for gasping. 
because I'm going to suggest to you that that is poorly stated. Poorly stated. I would suggest that maybe we could rephrase it and say, if we don't confess, we don't experience forgiveness. You see, this gives an implication of God's attitude, the way this is stated. It implies that God remains unforgiving. He does not. God is forgiving to everyone. How do we know? While you were yet sinners, Christ died for you. We didn't confess first. He loved us so much, he came first. The kindness of God leads us to repentance, Romans 2.4. The first was Romans 5.8. Those who crucified Christ on the cross, Christ said, Father, Forgive forgive them. They are forgiven by the one who has authority on heaven and earth to forgive sins. But did they open their heart to receive the forgiveness? Were they transformed by such a gracious and kind and forgiving attitude? No. So they didn't experience forgiveness, but God was not unforgiving toward them. It's a big difference. Do heathen gods forgive first or wait for the worshiper to bring them something to get forgiveness? Back to the trampling of the law of God. God's love, he's working to heal and reconcile, to win us back, or is he like a pagan Baal God? We must appease him and then he forgives. See, we must come to him with our confession, and if we don't, he won't forgive. That's paganism. He forgives, and he wins us back, and when he wins us back to trust, then he heals and restores us. Any questions? Our gracious Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for the opportunity to come and study. We pray, we thank you so much that you are a forgiving God that you are God of love, that you created us in harmony with your nature and character of love, and that you have been working since the moment of sin to heal, restore, and transform us back into unity and harmony with you. We thank you for the truth that sets us free so that we don't have to be afraid of you, that we should be afraid of unremedied sin in our lives, not you who are trying to heal us. So we ask for your spirit to bring us your truth, to bring us your love, to transform us, to take all the crises achieved and write your law of love into our hearts and minds and give us the ability to witness these truths so that our church can wake up and take this message to the world and you can come soon. We pray in your holy name. Amen.